I have, uh, I've got four sons. The oldest is 10 and the youngest is five. And they love doing stuff. All right? They love banging stuff, digging holes. One of my kids yesterday, we were doing a little bit of construction work outside, which I'll tell you about in a minute. He picked up a shovel and he goes, Dad, can I just move that pile of dirt to there? I'm just going, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that would be a really good thing for you to do. Um, the really interesting thing is that uh, there's one of my sons that doesn't really get involved very much. And I think I've, I'm still suspicious that the reason why he doesn't get involved is probably because of the way that I handled him. Okay? Um, let me tell you about construction projects with my sons. You ask them what square is and they go, what? What's that? All right. One of my kids yesterday uh, knew what the uh, angle in the corner of a, uh, of a square is, what size it is in terms of degrees. All right? Now, if you've, if you've ever done um, some kind of construction, that's pretty important because okay? you want to get things... Well, maybe you don't. I, I want to get things square, right? Um, so what we're doing yesterday is we went out yesterday and it was time we're building a chicken coop. Now, let me tell you something about... Um, one of the things that I hate the most, and it's, it's, it isn't my children, all right? So don't, don't go there. One of the things I hate the most, and I wonder if anyone can identify with me on this, is digging holes in clay soil. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And I six of them, right? And uh, I remember when my dog died. This is, this is probably a bit random, but <laughs> my dog died a bunch of years ago, and it was a hot summer's day. And it had been dry for a while. And I'm, this, the dog was stiff as a board, right? He kind of, he was sitting there with his head to the side <laughs> out the front of his kennel with his tongue hanging out. And we looked at him, we thought, no, he's just relaxing. He's having a sleep. And then an hour or two later, we just, well, he's still looking exactly the same as what he looked a couple of hours ago. I went over and the dog's dead, right? And he's a border collie and he was a big border collie. Um, and I picked him up. You know when you, oh, I don't know, it sounds, you pick up one end and it just stays straight like a surfboard. He'd been gone for a while. I don't know, I don't know what actually happened. But the, probably the hardest bit was I had to go over behind one of the gardens in black clay soil that was dry and dig a hole big enough for a border collie to go into who had died. Because uh, I'm not putting him in the wheelie bin, right? So there's probably someone thinking, that. just put him in the bin. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that that does for me, and this, this happened yesterday with, um, with building this chicken coop, is it really tests me. I get really frustrated. I think it's really uncool to dig a 600-deep hole in clay when you have to use a crowbar for every 30 millimetres. You get what I'm saying? That's, that's just really frustrating and it's really hard. Now, yesterday, I had three boys just buzzing around and four sometimes buzzing around saying, how can I help? That's really good, right? But what's actually happened for me in the past is when I've been doing that job and when I've been digging that hole... It hasn't been going the way that I've wanted and I've, I've become frustrated. And what's actually happened is I've been frustrated at my children and I've been rude toward my children. Um, and I, I, I honestly, I regret it. And yesterday, I was determined yesterday to go out and I just want to embrace them. And you know what? It's a chicken coop, right? So if it's not completely square, it doesn't matter. So if you come out of my house and you say it's not square, <laughs> you'll be hearing from me. Do you get my point? And so what, actually, what, what has happened with me is, and one thing I've really struggled with is I want things to go a particular way. I want things to be a particular way. And when I don't get what I want, I get frustrated and other people around me get, get hurt by my frustration because it doesn't go the way that I want it to go. And there were a few times yesterday where it got close to that, where it was difficult. 
Now, we used lots of water yesterday to soften the soil, and sometimes we ended up with too much water. And then we just had this great big mud puddle in the bottom of a hole. You know, and I can kind of say to you today, it was better yesterday, but there's been other times where what I actually wanted in my heart was so... I was so determined to get it and so frustrated I wasn't getting it that other people around me got hurt by it. Now, you could say that the reason why you get frustrated is because the soil's hard to dig a hole in. Couldn't it? And some people might say that. They'll go, no, seriously, Peter, like, if that soil was good soil, you wouldn't get frustrated. Is that true? Well, it might be. But see, the same thing happens for parents that happens for kids. When troubles come along, what they actually do is they test what's really important in someone's heart. They test the allegiances of the heart. They test what the people want in their hearts the most. Now, just hold on. You came to church to watch a guy drink some water. Okay. If I shake this uh, water bottle with the lid off, What's going, to come, what's going to come out? Why? Well, because of gravity. Yeah, why else? Because it's got water in it, right? So if I go like that, right, the water comes out because there was always water in there. And where I want to start today for you is when pressures come along, when troubles come along, as big or as small as they are, pressures shake us. And what comes out is what was always in there. It's not something new. It's something that was always in there. So when troubles and pressures and things roll the way that kids don't want them to roll, what comes out of that is what was always in their heart. It was always about the allegiances of their heart. And you know, when I dig holes and I build chicken coops with my kids and it doesn't go the way I want and I get frustrated and I hurt people, that's because on the inside in my heart, I wanted things to go a particular way at the start of the day and it didn't. And so stuff came out and it's not right to say well that stuff was only there because the holes were hard to dig it was always there it's just that the holes kind of brought it out and brought it to the surface does it make sense and that's really important to remember see that's an application for everyone that's kind of what troubles do they kind of reveal what's in our hearts and if you get down deep I mean you can look at a whole bunch of things I mean if I started yesterday and I had in my head that the day has to go well and these holes have to be dug and they have to be dug by 10 o'clock um, and I'm a- actually really committed to that and I don't get there, then I'm going to be frustrated. It's like these things in your heart that you commit yourself to, it's like this is how it has to happen. If it doesn't happen this way, I'm going to be frustrated. And what happens is troubles come along and some of that sort of stuff happens to kids too. Troubles come along to kids, they don't get what they want and the bottle shakes and all of a sudden stuff comes out and it's not like, whoa, where did... You know, where did that come from? I've never seen that. Well, it was always there. It just needed a good shake for it to come out. When you uh, look at the scriptures, the scriptures talk about uh, the heart. And uh, we had a quick look at this last week. And we looked at the fact that the heart in the scriptures really has to do with the desires, the feelings and the thoughts. But you can see there, last week we actually looked at the fact that troubles our societal context, the strengths and weaknesses that all of us have, our temperament and the body can actually send shockwaves through our heart. So the moral centre is the heart. The moral centre is not the hardness of the soil. All right? 
the moral sin is the heart. The, the hardness of the soil is a, is a context for me that tests my heart. And it's really interesting. When you, uh, when you talk with two people in conflict with one another, do you know what they say to you all the time? If the other person just changed the way that they were acting, I'd be fine. And then you talk to the other one and they go, if the other person just changed the way they were acting, I'd be fine. And you know I say in the midst of that, I say no, because what's actually happening in the midst of that is you've got an active heart that's operating in the midst of that, that's responding to that situation. So you could do a study in the Bible and you could look at the biblical adjectives for the heart. Check these out. Rejoicing, responsive, righteous, sick, sincere, sinful, steadfast, troubled, calloused, contrite, blighted, adulterous, anguished, arrogant, crushed, dark, dead, malicious, unfeeling, envious, evil, faint, devoted, disloyal, malicious, obstinate, perverse, proud, pure, rebellion, deceitful, deluded, faithful, fearful, broken, foolish, grateful, happy, hard, haughty, humble, mad, astray, bitter and blameless. These are ways that the heart is described in scripture. And there might be one that fits you today where your heart is at. And last week what we looked at is that the heart is active in every single moment. And my encouragement to everyone last week really was be present. If you're a parent, be present in the moments where your kids react to things. See what's going on in their hearts and then extract the moment. Every single expression of your children is an expression of their heart and where their heart is at. And what I want to uh, throw you away today is that I think there's two general aspects to parenting. The first one is a proactive uh, aspect. I think that there's a whole bunch of moments that you need to be proactive about as a parent. And that includes things like uh, instruction, building an interpretive framework, we'll get to that in a minute, and uh, instruction through your own personal example. But I also think, uh, and anyone who's been a parent for longer than about 10 minutes knows that there's reactive moments in parenting. Now, reactivity uh, has probably got a pretty bad rap. Now, what I mean by reactive moments here is I mean there's things that you need to react to in parenting. They kind of come up. It's not like you can plan it. You sit down, you've got a 35-point plan if you're that kind of person at the start of the week for your kids, and then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes in and you just go, oh, I'm sorry, I can't see any that anywhere on my agenda. Can you just... Just go and sit down. Let's, let's push that one aside. I mean, you just can't do that. Kids bring stuff and adults bring stuff and stuff ends up on the agenda because it ends up on the agenda. And you need to react to it and you need to do something about it. Um, some ways that we need to uh, handle parenting in those moments, obviously correction is going to be part of it. Uh, what could have been a better way? Entreaty is uh, going to be important to tenderly care and plead for the child's heart. You're going to need to do that in a reactive sense. And the last one there is rebuke. Uh, which explains how their behaviour fell short of God's standard. So let's have a quick look through some of these today. <clears throat> Proactive moments. Here's a good question. Do you need to teach your, t- teach your children about God? That's an interesting question. Obviously, now I want to suggest to you today that teaching your children about God is even more important than the people who think it's the most important thing here today. And I'll tell you why, because if God's actually real and he exists and he's actually involved in this world the way that the Bible talks, there's actually nothing more important that exists than making sure that people know about God, that that kids know about God. You see, at the end of the day, people's knowledge of God affects just about everything else in their life. 
Like it affects everything else. See, you can't know yourself unless you know God. That's the way that God's made you. And you can't know God unless you know yourself. Uh, that's one of the classic theological interconnections. If you go right back to the very beginning, God actually made people. If you're not a Christian here today, God actually made you to be oriented toward him. That's how he made humans in the first place. So that actually tells you straight up, if God made you in his image, as the scriptures say, to be oriented toward you, what that actually tells you is that's going to be a fundamental reality in your life. Now, you can either live in denial of that or you can embrace that and live in that. And one of the ways that God's actually made people in the very beginning is that God made people to be interpreters. And this is a really important part of uh, proactive um, parenting is that you need to inform the way that your kids interpret the world. Hear me when I say this. There's not one person in this, ro- in this room that lives their life based on the facts. Everyone lives their life based on the interpretation of the facts. Think about that. You don't live your life based on the facts. You live your life based on the interpretation of the facts. And you know what? Part of the reason why it went better building the chicken keep yesterday is because my interpretation of the facts was different. The facts probably didn't change yesterday compared to other times that I've, that I've built things with my kids. They still stand behind me where the butt of the shovel will hit them in their temple <laughs> if I don't tell them to move. And I, need, I don't know how many times I asked them to move yesterday. And there's this thing about kids, I don't know what it is. It's just like they know they're in the wrong place, so they'll go and stand in the perfectly wrong place somewhere else. I don't know, have you noticed that? They just they go and stand there and say, now I'm going to hit you in the head with a shovel, all right? And I don't want to get a call from docs about this. So you're just going to have to move. But yesterday, part of what happened is I think God helped me to change my interpretation, the way that I was reading things. But that is absolutely true for you across the whole of your life is that you're continually interpreting things. And God made you to interpret things. That's what he made you to do. But guess what? He made you to interpret things using his framework. And I bet you this week that you didn't interpret everything using his framework. And when you don't do that, you end up in trouble. And sometimes you end up in trouble when you do do it. But I guarantee you end up in trouble when you don't interpret things through his interpretive grid. You see, our interpretation of things was always meant to be based on what God said. So the question, do you need to teach your kids about God? Well, yeah. Like if you're actually going to know reality and your kids are going to know reality, you better teach them about God because it's his grid that they're meant to use or his glasses that they're meant to use to view the world. Now, the really scary thing about this, do you know this? Is that your children, if you've got children, are, are being taught how to interpret life all of the time because our surrounding culture actually teaches them how to do it. And I want to suggest to you today, it's not actually about us. Some parents have this mentality like, I've just got to stop the bad stuff from coming in. If we can stop the bad stuff from coming in, we'd be all right. And I just go, well, you're just full of bad stuff yourself, right? So you're just going to have troubles with that. It's, it's not about stopping the bad stuff from coming in. It's about guiding children through the difficult stuff. And I want to suggest to you uh, this this morning. I think you need a plan. I think you're actually going to need... I'll just encourage you to sit down and have moments where you think, how am I actually going to bring up my child? 
sit down and talk with your spouse and just say, how are we going to bring up this kid? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? You see, bringing up children in this culture is fraught with an incredible number of difficulties. And then you've got the, uh, the particular signature struggles of the kid, their temperament, their strengths, their weaknesses. You better just make sure that you're actually thinking about that. And you know, at the end of the day, you know what the ultimate goal is? The ultimate goal is that you're raising up someone that doesn't need that intensive help anymore. One of my lines has been, the point of discipline is self-discipline. And I'll talk a little bit about discipline later on. The goal of discipline is not to mete out punishment or wrath or judgment upon someone. It's really to train someone so that you don't have to do it anymore. Good discipline does itself out of a job. True? And that's the point. And that's what we need to be doing with kids, folks, if you're a parent. You want to put limits on your children so that they won't need the limits one day. So the limits are internalised. You see, God's quite critical in the scriptures about legalism because it's not coming from the heart. And it's not rules that's going to protect your child. It's rules that are going to train your child and limits that are going to train your child in the way that they need to go. So you know what you need to do? You need to use the ratings lock on your TV. Do you even know it's got one? Use your ratings lock. A ratings lock is where you can put a pin in and it's like... No one can come out and look at stuff at any point in time unless they put the pin in if it's over a G rating in our house. Does that mean I don't let my kids watch PG things? No, it doesn't. It just means I have to put the pin in to let them watch a PG thing. Does that make sense? You need to use stuff like that. Because you know what? I got up to all my sneaky stuff when my parents didn't know. And if you're sitting there today, I remember talking to my brother-in-law a little while ago and he goes, no, I think we're pretty clean. I'm just going, oh, rubbish. Like, there's no way. He had like a teenage son and he's got Wi-Fi and the kid's got a laptop in his bedroom with the door closed. And I'm just going, there is not a male alive at 13, year, 13 years of age who's kept his sheet clean who's got access to the internet in his bedroom. Now, at the end of the day, what do you want? Do you actually want to have a child that needs your rules? I mean, it would be weird, wouldn't it? And it's like 35 and they're ringing you up and they're saying, can you give me the pen for the TV? You don't want that, do you? You want someone at 35 who's just going, I've got the internal discipline now that I'm not actually going to engage in that kind of stuff because it's not helpful. Because you've taught them about God, you've taught them about how that's going to be destructive to them and how it's going to be difficult for them. But you know what? You're going to have to put filters on your internet. I'll put it out there. You shouldn't give your kids internet access in their bedrooms. Don't give it to them. You need to see what they're doing. I just think uh, the internet's just like a kilo of crack cocaine you know, like for kids, and they get like one sniff of it and like that's the end of the section, okay? And the thing is, I'm just putting it out there, um, there's there's some people in this church in the past who have counted up how many times we talk about porn, but I'm just going to talk about it for a minute. The thing about porn is there's almost an endless array of images, all right? And the way it works is uh, boys will look at an image until they get tired of it and then they'll find another one and in the past, the great hope was you just, there was a limited range of images they could get access to. Now, it's virtually limitless. Now, I remember hearing, uh, this is years ago, someone gave me a stat on, uh, on motorbikes. Maybe Ray, Ray Hinks might be able to help me on this. But someone told me years ago, they said, only 8% 
of 18 to 20-year-olds 20, 20 who own an 1,100cc motorbike survive. That was a stat I heard. Now, I don't think you're allowed to do that now. I think they've got limits on licences and the power of bikes and all that sort of stuff. But that was a stat that I heard. And I just thought, you know what the internet is? is it's a bit like having an 1,100cc bike when you don't know how to ride it. It's like you get on and you do stuff on there and you can make a real mess of things before you even notice what's going on. Now, am I saying that you don't want them <laughs> to have access to the internet? I'm not saying that. But you have to teach them and you have to walk alongside them in it. I remember I was in the car once um, driving in town and um, we drove past the vault, right? Now, I've got four sons. And I've been pretty committed, um, haven't done as much of it of late, to be honest, but I've been pretty committed to talk to my kids about sexuality before hormones kick in. Because at the moment, they don't like girls that much, okay? They like their mother, but they don't like girls that much. Um, and I think, let's, let's take a, uh, an opportunity here to really uh, get, this, uh, get this squared away as much as we possibly can. So I pointed over, it, over to it and I said, you boys see that post over there? I, uh, I said, do you know what goes on in there? And they go, no. I said, you know what goes on in there is that women get in there and they take all their clothes off and people pay to watch them. It's just going, that is disgusting. <laughs> all right? Good response. All right? That's what you're looking for. That's a good response. You know, I mean, some of the stats say that the average age of uh, exposure to... Uh, Issues to do with sexuality yeah, and pornography is about 11 years old. So I'm just throwing it out to you. If you haven't had the, bird, the birds and the bees thing, you better just get going, all right? It's springtime. There's lots of bees and there's lots of birds at the moment, right? So just get right into that. Um, another one that I had with my sons was um, we were in Clifford Gardens, and uh, I've told this story at the project before, but I'll throw it out again. We are in Clifford Gardens and uh, had all the boys with me. Um, and uh, we... Um, uh, Ange went into a chemist and opposite the chemist, bras and things. All right? Like twice life size woman in bra and undies. All right? And uh, I said, the boys, look at that. And, uh, and they did. I said, I said, have you guys ever seen mummy go to the shops looking like that? They go, no, that would be weird. <laughs> All right? And I said, yeah, it would be weird. I said, what do you reckon about them putting a picture of a lady in the shops like that? And they said, well, that's not right. It's going, good response. That's good. So here's the thing. I'll just encourage you on this. Look, <clears throat> it's all good. But I think you need to be talking about sexuality all the time. And you know what it starts with? It starts with using the correct terminology when they're like three for the parts of their body. So none of this kind of, that's your wee-wee. It's just going, no, it's, it's your penis, all right? And some of you go, did he just say that in church? Yes, he did, because it's not a rude word, all right? That's part of your biological anatomy if you're a male, okay? And I just, that's part of it. I mean, who wants to be taking their kid to the doctor and the kid goes, I've got a problem with my wee-wee? Now, the doctor's going to know, right? But part of sexuality and training and education and interpreting and framing things is that you're actually just going to be... Um, clear about that stuff and use the, the proper terminology. Um, my, I wanted to get in early. So one of my conversations with my sons, we got talking about the whole sex thing. In uh, This sounds very weird probably to you. 
But we just, we ended up sitting down and we ended up talking about it in the food court at Clifford Gardens. All right? Now, it was a good conversation. It was an awkward conversation, but it was a good one. Is, there, is anyone else awkward here now? Everyone's kind of moving in their seats a little bit. And the classic, classic question he asked was, he goes, do you and mummy do this? And I'm just going, oh. I think you need to talk about it. Here's the thing. If they think it's... If they see that you're awkward about it, you don't get the opportunity and, and you don't talk about it, you don't get the opportunity to frame it for them. And you better believe in our culture that sexuality is just all over the place and they're being educated by that stuff all the time. And if you don't weigh in as a significant voice in their life, you're going to miss out on something really important. Uh, it is awkward, but if kids see you being really awkward and, and scared and ashamed of it, it's just going to make it really difficult. Now, you probably want to give your partner, your marriage partner, the heads up before you it's kind of, kind of waltz into that one, right? Because that could be a bit weird around the, the, the dining room table at night time. Um, but, you know, our, uh, our, let me tell you what our culture wants to uh, teach your kids to do. Our culture wants to teach your kids to worship sex. And the sex that they want to teach your children to have is recreational and selfish. Do you want that? Well, then you're going to have to be talking about it to them probably at least as much as what the culture talks to them about it, which is a lot. Julie Lowe, a um, biblical counsellor for children, says this. She says, Children interpret life and experiences whether or not we talk about, to them about it. Often we avoid discussing what we don't want to deal with. We think if we avoid discussing it, our children won't think about it. The problem is children are already thinking, interpreting and drawing conclusions about life. And they're doing it without any loving guidance and without a redemptive worldview. Listen to this. Children need wisdom greater than themselves, just as adults do. They need you to talk to them about this stuff. And it's probably going to be really awkward if you leave it until they're 13. But if you start when they're three and it's a natural part of your conversation, you see, there's so much talk now about people say, you know, you hear on the radio, someone's had an affair, someone's gotten divorced, someone's committed adultery. And kids are going to go, what's that? Well, if you don't have any categories, if you haven't taught them any categories about what that actually means, you're going to be in trouble. The next thing I just want to throw in is this. You need to constantly pursue your child. And part of this are these three. Having constant conversations with your children. Uh, One thing I realised in the school when I was working at the school here is this. There will always be a teachable moment that will come up for teenagers. But you can't program it. You can't schedule it. And do you know what? Do you know the only way that you can be there for the teachable moments is to be with them a lot. And that was kind of part of my mode of operation in the early years when I was at the school here is I spent lots and lots of times with teenagers because I wanted to be there when the teachable moment actually happened. And it doesn't really change. I think it's the case with young kids too. They're not going to share their heart and share the depths of their heart on cue. It's like, we're having dinner now and I'd like you to tell me about the most important thing that happened in your day. I might tell you something, but you know, sometimes the things that they don't think are important are some of the biggest, most important things. Have you ever noticed that? And it kind of comes out and you just kind of go, whoa, you know, it's like, 
you're doing something in the house, maybe you're sweeping the floor or you're out with the whippersnipper and you stop to refuel it and then all of a sudden the kid says something, you just go, oh, hang on, that's actually way more important than anything I've heard you say over the last two weeks. You need to pursue your children and have conversations with them. The second one then is uh, there is to engage in ongoing appropriate self-disclosure. I reckon this is really, really important. Because it's when you actually talk about the struggles in your life and the things that bother you that your children learn how to interpret life. It teaches them about process and how you work through things that are difficult. And it's one thing uh, I've done on on occasion, uh, on reasonably regular occasions with my kids, is I'll come home. I remember I got an assignment back um, that I was doing and I got a a much poorer mark and I thought the assignment was a better assignment than that and they really carved me up and I was really bothered by it and I remember saying to the kids I said man I just got a grade that was really disappointing I still passed but it was really disappointing and it's like what I wanted to do is I just wanted to say what do you reckon I should do what what should I do when I work really really hard at something and I get disappointed by it because you know that's going to happen to them right and you just want to have that conversation there. Like if you're always the professional, if you're the one that has always got the correct answers for your children, they're going to be slower to come to you for help, I think. Because it's almost like they can't identify with you. But if you, in an appropriate way, disclose things to them and say, look, I'm really struggling with this. And you know, sometimes I reckon kids can be incredibly helpful. So I'd encourage you, ask them for help. You know, in a sense, my self-disclosure there was part teaching. It was part, what would you guys say to me? That's really what I was asking. What would you say to me? I'm really disappointed right now. What would you say to me? And so I asked him questions. I'd say, do you think that this grade says, tells me who I am? And then we have this conversation about identity. And we can have that conversation about identity to do with grades when the grades are good and when they're bad. Because what tends to happen when they're good is we tend to smuggle that stuff in and we go, oh, I'm actually a, a good person. I'm, I'm a valuable person. It tends to be more, more sharp and more painful when it's a struggle. I remember um, at the point where I was considering going on and doing further study, I actually thought, at the time, and I still think it's going to have a bearing and an impact on the family. And we were standing, I can even tell you where it was, we were standing right next to a mandarin tree. And uh, one of my kids was sitting up on top of a fence post. And uh, I said, boys, here's what, I was, um, here's what I'm thinking about studying. And I said, what do you guys reckon? Do you think I should? And then we just had this big conversation. And you know what they said? In the end they said, yeah, we think you probably should. Now... It's not kind of a prophetic, thus saith the Lord, this is what you've got to go and do kind of moment. But do you get what I'm saying? Like we, we had a conversation about it because I was at a point where I didn't actually know uh, whether that um, was going to be the direction that I was going to travel. So just be honest with your kids. Be transparent with your kids. Obviously, some of you are going, oh, there's stuff I wouldn't tell me. Yeah, yeah, of course, there's going to be stuff that you wouldn't tell your kids. But you know what? If you come home and you've had a bad day and you're a bit stressed and you're a bit down... Uh, find a way to tell your kids that you're struggling a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit anxious. Oh, what's anxious? Oh, I'm a bit... I'm kind of worried that something's going to hurt me tomorrow. What do you reckon I should do about that? You got any thoughts?
I remember sitting in the car uh, with uh, one of my sons in the back, uh, driving somewhere, and um, I, in my head, he would not have known, I, in my head, um, was just thinking about all this stuff that really, to be honest, I was probably worshipping, and it had become the most important thing to me. And I don't even remember what it was, but I remember this. He just came out of the blue. It was like a thunderclap. He goes, you know, you shouldn't worship anyone but Jesus, Daddy. You know that, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Proactive moments. Reactive moments. Listen to Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop in uh, England. He said this. He said, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Anyone ever seen this with kids? You have a conversation, you're just going... It's just a really dumb conversation. It's like you've just got someone who's a massive convert of hitting, heading in a completely idiotic direction and they've come up with a 15-point kind of plan or reason why that's a, a good place to go. And just going, that's not a good place to go. But what it all comes down to is it comes down to what the heart loves. And the reason why is because God made all of you, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, constantly and unceasingly worshipping. All of the time you trust in something. All of the time kids trust in something. They're always hoping in something, sacrificing for something, obeying something, desiring something, longing for something, delighting in something, getting identity from something. They're always worshipping something, as you and I are also. Every moment for a human being is a worshipping moment. And you know what happens, biblically, is when people worship something that's not Jesus, it doesn't bring freedom It brings bondage and slavery and blindness. And so the question about reactive moments when a child's actually being rebellious, what you're really asking is this child has given themselves to a false god and they're now blind. They don't see themselves properly. Has anyone been in a moment like this with their kids where you're just going, you just don't get it. You do not get it right now. Because what's happened is they've actually given themselves to the worship of something false and that's made them blind and deaf and unable to see themselves. And so that's actually what's going on in disciplined moments is you've got a child, how do I actually get them to see themselves and to see God in this particular moment? And we actually see this in Romans 1 verse 25. They, humanity, exchange the truth about God for a what? A lie. A lie is deception. And when you look in the scripture, sin deceives. When you turn your worship away from God, by definition, you become deceived. Now, how easy is it to get yourself out of deception? What do you think? Is that easy or hard? It's hard. Why is it hard? Because you're deceived. (laughs) Because you don't know you're deceived. Like if you could get yourself out... You wouldn't be deceived, right? But you need help to kind of get out of that. Now, how do you get someone out of a place of deception where they don't see things that they need to see? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. One way that you can do this is by squashing rebellion. Some of you go, but that doesn't actually work. And I think that's right. I think you can have an approach when someone's rebellious, you can really go after them. But you know what it does to the rebellion? It just pushes it onto the black market, right? They'll find a way to do it 
that doesn't cause trouble for them. The other end of the spectrum is you can placate and you can give in to manipulation and rebellion as if the willingness will go away, the willfulness will go away if you just ignore it. Does it work? No, it doesn't. They just find a way. That becomes then uh, something that the child does. Um, they learn that they can manipulate the situation to get what they want. Now, the really amazing thing Have you guys heard that, that story that Jesus talks about where he says, if you want to go out and you want to pick out the something that's wrong in someone else, you've got to take the log out of your own eye first. You know that one? And it's like, if you want to pick a speck out of someone else's eye, you've got to take the log out of your own. And I think that teaches two things. One of the things it teaches is that both you and your children don't see the things that they need to see in themselves. But it also points out the fact that we're actually reasonably able to pick stuff out that's going wrong in someone else's life we're probably far more able to see what's going wrong for someone else than we are to see what's going wrong for us. Do you see that? And part of that, the reason for that, is because of this mechanism. If you just have a look up on the screen there, you can see the process basically is we start as worshippers, we willingly swap something that's true for a lie, and that's just the way that sin works, right? It promises something it's never going to deliver on. So we say, yeah, I think that's actually going to deliver. So we receive the advice of the one that can only lie, which is the devil, and we refuse the instruction of the one that can't lie. Do you see the problem? So what happens with with kids and with us is we embrace the the lie, we become deceived, we end up in, in some kind of slavery to it, and we end up with significant personal blindness. And how many times have you had a conversation, I wonder, with a child, maybe with your child, where you know that they're just completely wrong and they kind of, they might have a bit of a hint that they know that they're wrong and maybe you might see the corner of their mouth go up every now and then but they keep going with their point because they're stuck in it. Has anyone seen that? And they just keep going and they just keep having the debate and they kind of know that they're wrong and half an hour later after you've sorted it all out, you have a conversation with them they go, yeah, I, I was wrong. I knew I was wrong from the start but I just had to keep going. That's just how it works. You kind of get into slavery to something and you kind of just keep going. And somehow you try to make it work for yourself. Paul Tripp says this, we can look at the sin and conflicts of our children as a positive experience because we know God is working and bringing opportunities for our child to change. You see, a lot of times in the family, you can have, it's like, what? I'm just sitting down to relax and I've got a cold drink. Do you have to just come and sin right in front of me? <laughs> All right. And just cause trouble. Well, the thing is, I think God brings that stuff along. I think Paul Tripp's right. I think God's continually bringing along opportunities for you to see the worshipping of your children and the things that they value which are not Jesus and help to turn their hearts back to him. We can see it as a moment of ministry. We are God's instrument for change in our child's life. The difficulty is, and note this, When we get angry at our kids for bringing their sin along in front of us and inconveniencing our life, you know what it actually does? It takes an issue that was originally between them and God and makes it an issue between them and us. Do you see that? Because the child's issue that they might be angry about or upset about fundamentally is an issue between them and God. When it comes along in front of you and it inconveniences you and you get upset about it all of a sudden it's like your issue is with me now because you're wrecking my life 
And your job is to actually help them to sort the thing out with God. If they can sort out their thing with God, they might have a chance of sorting things out with you. Because one of the spin-offs of having things sorted out with God is that people love each other. So how do you help children to see things? I'll suggest this to you. You need to stand with them side by side as a fellow blind person. True? Stand, don't... I, I mean, I've been pretty bad at that. Lecturing. Has anyone noticed kids don't listen to lectures? Do you know what? I reckon lectures from parents are probably more about the cathartic release for the parents than about the kids. Because kids, seriously, 10 seconds in, they're just, ah, bah, 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 bah. that's what it is. All right? If you're a lecturer, I'm just telling you, we can do some kind of research degree on it if you want, on your children, probably. But I'm just telling you, they're probably not listening. You know, and it's like, seriously, like kids won't listen in class to a teacher talk for 10 minutes. Why are they going to listen to you lecture them? It's just like, I remember this kid at school here, he used to get detentions all the time, and uh, they didn't bother him at all. He just found some way in his head he could just click out of reality and just be somewhere else for half an hour. That would be, that's a cool strength, isn't it? Um, but somehow kids kind of do that. Um, you know, here's a question for you. How do you like others? No, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Not how do you like it. What techniques are most effective when someone else needs to show you your blindness? I mean, one of the questions I've, I've thought about as I've been preparing for this is, how would you go, parents, if, you, if someone used the same techniques that you use with your children to show them the truth, if someone used those on you, would you learn? Would you be open to it? Like if someone came and got drill sergeant on you and got in your face and was pointing in your face and lectured you for 10 minutes, would you? Now, when you read the scriptures, you know one of the things that comes out often in the scriptures is that to tell stories. Stories help people to see stuff. Have conversations. You know, all of us love the idea that we can be a thus saith the Lord Old Testament prophet to our kids. All right? Hear ye, hear ye. All right? God's judgment is going to pour down upon you if you don't stop leaving your shoes at the front door. God's judgment is going to pour down on you if you don't clean your room up. But do you know what? I mean, if God did that to you all the time, now he does do it sometimes, but he tends to only do that with people who are rebellious and keep being rebellious over a long period of time. He tends to be gentle and calm and conversational and stirring things up most of the time. So use metaphors. And you know what? There's going to be times when you want to talk to your kids and help them to see something and you'll get to the end of it and you'll go, well, they just wrecked that. And you know what? They probably did. They probably got distracted. Some of my boys, they just see stuff. And they just, like our place can go from a, a very calm, everyone sitting listening to something, to a wallabies ruck in about three and a half seconds. And they're all in on top of each other and... You were having some, you know, and you know what? They get distracted and they, they run away. And it may be their fault that they don't get the point. But you know what? Your job is find another way. Find another way. Don't give up. It's going to happen. 
So let me give you a couple of questions to use. These are some good questions you can use with your kids. First one's this, what was going on? This is really important. Pretty much everyone would do this, right? You're in one part of the house, other part of the house, it was quiet, which is not always a good sign if you're a parent, by the way. Uh, but it was quiet, and then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. People are crying, you can hear objects hitting the walls. The first thing you're going to want to do probably is just say, can someone please tell me what was going on in there? Get some data. Second thing is this. This is really important. Ask them what they were thinking and feeling. And you know what that gets to? That gets to what is their heart response to the situation. You know, one of the things I've been trying to get out of my kids lately when they do things that are hurtful to one another is I really want to find out whether they've got any empathy for their, their sibling. Do they, do they even care that they just hit him in the head with, you know, 500 Lego bricks that have been put together in a house, you know? Or do they care about that? Or do they not care about that? Because that's really important. If someone lacks empathy, uh, that can be uh, pretty, pretty nasty. Uh, what did you do? That's pretty important. What was their behavioural response? Why did you do it? Motives, goals, desires that shaped the active response? And what was the result? How did their response affect the situation? Well, some of you might have been waiting for this. When is discipline required? Now, we're not... I'm not. I'm not going to talk about smacking or any of that kind of stuff. Okay? There will be a, a quick reference to it in a quote, but I'm not going to talk about that. And the reason why I'm not going to talk about it is because I don't have time and uh, we'd want to explain that really, really well. The one point I would make is... Smacking is very, very unhelpful if it is some kind of cathartic release for someone who's angry. And unfortunately, smacking is that a lot of the time. It's like, I'm really angry with you right now, so I'm going to hit you. Now, that's not good. Okay? I think there's a good argument that smacking is a good way to connect pain to actions, but not when it gets hijacked by anger. But I would add this. That same statement can be made about most discipline techniques, whether it's smacking or not. None of them work particularly well when they get hijacked by anger and the desires of the parent. Discipline is about helping a blind person to see. Proverbs 29.17 says, Discipline your son and your daughters, by the way, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Look, you need to discipline. And there's lots of different ways that you can discipline. And as I said earlier, the point of discipline is self-discipline. And you need to note this. Godly discipline, you can do the right things and it won't always get you the right result. And that doesn't mean that what you did was wrong. It just means that there's a heart in between the result and the discipline. And the heart can kind of malfunction and cause things to go a little bit weird. And the last thing I'll just say is this on this uh, slide here is don't use shame and guilt as discipline techniques. You ever heard a parent say this? How could you do this to us? I thought you were beyond that. Then people in a group saying things like, look at what he did. You know, and there's a sense sometimes where, look, 2% of the time, I mean, I think the Bible gives, an, gives a bit of room there that shame can actually bring about appropriate change in people. But I reckon that's probably 2% of the time at the most. And most of the time, 
almost all of the time, shame is destructive in terms of changing people. Because you know what? When someone shames you, it doesn't work for you most of the time either, does it? It just makes you want to just protect yourself. And it just kind of makes you write off everything that person says because of what they because of what it said about you and the shame that was connected to it. I'm going to fly through. You can read those quotes later. Probably the, the, I might just read the bottom one. Listen to this. The effectiveness of corrective discipline is always determined by the relationship you build in preventative discipline. Listen to this. If you don't play with him, you have no right to spank him. Now, you can insert anything in there at the end instead of spanking. But that's true, isn't it? I could say, if you don't play with them, if you don't have fun with them, you don't have any right to, to discipline them. Now, am I saying that you, sh- you need to go home and not discipline? No, I'm saying go home and enjoy your children. We had 10 minutes the other night at the dinner table. It was hilarious. We were just laughing, all right? And one of our kids was just working the crowd, right? He got his hands out and he's going, no, no, everyone stop. I've got another joke. And then he'd, he'd say the joke, he'd put his hand in the air and everyone, you know, because it was a question kind of joke that was kind of going on where you had to answer yes or no and, and he just held the floor. And we just, you know, you know what we do? We just sit down and we're just laughing. Ange and I just thought it was hilarious. You need to enjoy them. Here's where I'm going to finish. Galatians 6. Listen to this. Do not be deceived... God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. Here's the last thing I want to leave with you. And I'm just going to show you a couple of charts quickly to show you this. You need to work with consequences, but there's a difference between consequences and behaviorism okay now there's two basic categories of consequences for children that are going to be helpful for them one is the natural consequences if no one interferes as long as they're reasonable and not extreme or excessive now it'd be cruel if you had like a four-year-old next to a highway and they started walking out and you went okay well you just need to learn the consequences (laughs) all right that's, I mean, some of you, that's not even funny for some of you, right? Because it's not. That's not helpful. But there's some times where you're just going to say to your kid, look, I'm going to let that run for a bit. And the natural consequences of your actions are going to take place and that's going to shape you a little bit. Now, you need to oversee that, but uh, that's one thing that you can do. The other thing is that parents can shape um, the consequences so that the outcomes underscore what God wants to bring about in the, in the child, all right? And that's when they're actually logically connected to what's going on. Now, I'm not going to have a show of hands, but I'm sure there's a bunch of people here who've got some kind of sticker chart or something at home for their kids. Now, I'm not speaking directly against that kind of stuff, but what I do want to speak against a little bit is the whole idea of behaviourism, which says... If I give the right rewards and punishments, my kids will act the way that I want them to. I'll give them a lolly. As someone said to me a little while ago, they said, well, people wear out um, in terms of their attentiveness to um, inducements, usually by the end of primary school. I'm just going, well, I don't think they ever do. Because I think what, all that changes is they're not really that motivated by a mini Mars bar anymore. They're more motivated by a car or a mobile phone or something else. 
A large part of the problem with behaviourism is it teaches children to be self-serving. If I act in this particular way, I'll get something for me. And I think it's really dangerous. So I just want to rip through really quickly the difference between the sowing and reaping principle from Galatians 6 and um, behaviourism. Here's the first one. The goal of behaviourism is an external attempt to change behaviour. The goal of reaping and sowing, the principle of consequences, according to Galatians 6, is this. It's to underscore the principles of scripture. Number two. This is really important. Behaviourism generally is unrelated to behaviour. Okay? And that's really like, if you do this particular thing, I'll give you a mini pack of Skittles. Just going, okay, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, it's just a clear, just inducement to, uh, to act in a particular way. Sowing, the sowing and reaping principle is closely related to the behaviour. So let me give you an example here really quickly. Um, one of the things that we've started doing in our house is uh, when our children talk rudely, we'll stop them from going to things that they like. Now, you might go, well, isn't that just behaviourism? Like you've just punished them by removing something. No, well, this is how we've cashed it out. We've cashed it out like this. We, we don't want to bring up hypocrites. And a hypocrite is someone who might talk rudely at home, but they don't when they go out and they're with their friends. And they act all nice when they're in front of other people. And so we just say to them, we say, look, here's the deal. You're just not going to get to go out and be with your friends unless you can act consistently across the board. I don't like this idea like, it's like they can treat their parents like rubbish as long as they're okay when they're out. I'm just going, no, that's not the kind of people we want to bring up and I hope it's not the kind of people you want to bring up. And so can you see how there's a connection there? The connection is the consequence is actually connected to the action. The third one there, event-oriented and temporary. Um, Sowing and reaping is process-oriented for eternal benefit. So you're looking at a long-term process rather than a short-term gain. Number four, it's concerned with controlling behaviour. And sowing and reaping is actually concerned with producing enduring fruit. And the last one there is that um, behaviourism reflects personal standards and sowing and reaping reflects... God's law and where you're actually wanting to move kids to. So I'll just encourage you on this note think about what you're doing in terms of your discipline and think about how closely connected it is to real consequences in life and uh, what God would have for your children. I want to close just by reading a part of this newspaper story. Listen to this. This is out of the Curry Mail. As a kid, I used to think of my dad as a temporary necessity. Back then, he seemed to be mainly a source of rules and money. Now, you can include mother in here um, as well, or mum in here as well. I'd appreciate it if, if you just thought that way as well. And I figured once I was independent, I'd make my own of both. But as I get older, I find I need him more than ever. Like most people, I have vivid memories of my dad from when I was a kid. Sharp mental pictures of familiar places and good times. In those days, he was hero and protector. He seemed ten foot tall and could solve any problem. But he was also a light-hearted, big-hearted joker, a clown and a king. I remember clinging to his muscled frame as he emerged from the ocean at Coolangatta on a lazy summer holiday. Three weeks on the beach would turn his skin as brown as the leftover Christmas cake. 
I also remember, perhaps from a much earlier time, pressing tiny and curious fingers against his afternoon stubble at the end of his long workday. His clothes had the dry, salty feel of too many hours in the sweltering Brisbane sun. The memories of childhood times spent with him just come and come. Favourite places, routines, tall stories and jokes. In recent years, those childhood memories have been replaced with a deeper understanding of my dad's contribution to my life. Dads are not, of course, temporary necessities. And neither are mums. In so many ways, they are a vital part of our adult lives, just as they were in our childhood. When I got married, Dad's name was the first on the guest list. I wanted him to love my new, new wife and I wanted her to know and love him the same way I did. When we built our first home, there was no one I was more eager to show the plans to or to take to see the site. And now that I'm just weeks away from having a child of my own, I want him or her to grow old with just the same wonderful memories that I have. As I deal with the highs and the lows of fatherhood, I'll need my dad's advice and guidance as I've done so often in the past. No one's recollections of their dad will be quite the same as mine, but I hope they are just as vivid and as special because our dads are indispensable. When we are kids, they are the source of all strength and wisdom, and no matter what we do or say, that strength and wisdom never runs out. If anything, as we get older, it only becomes more important. So to all our dads, happy Father's Day. We probably don't always show it or say it, but we do appreciate the sacrifices you make and the gifts you give us. Listen to this. My dad died before my wedding. He didn't see the house, plans, or tour of the site. He never read my stories in this paper. And he'll never know my kids, even though as much as possible, they'll know him. He's been gone six years this week. And even after all this time, when exciting new things happened to me, I just longed to tell him about them and to listen to his opinion. I used to think of my dad as a temporary necessity, but as I get older, I find I need him more than ever. And I think that's true for mums and dads. You know, the bad news is that parenting probably never ends until you die, right? It's probably some of you probably feel like you're just going, when is this going to be over? Well, you know what? You're never, ever going to have someone who doesn't need your contribution. True? And it's a great honour that you've got. And I'll just encourage you, let's grab it with both hands. Amen? Let's grab it with both, both hands and do what we can. And that's going to involve reactive moments where we need to discipline and proactive moments where we're just engaged.